Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Who doesn't love the story of David and Goliath, right? Come on, what a story. The ultimate underdog takes out the undefeated giant. We love it, right? It's such an incredible story that no matter where you are in this world, whether you've been in church a hundred years or you've never gone to church before, you have at least heard of the reference David versus Goliath, right? Whether it's a sporting event or a job interview, we all know what it means when David takes out Goliath, right? The underdog wins a victory he has no business being a part of. That's what it means. But be careful, Christian, that you don't grow numb to the lessons we see in David and Goliath because of the familiarity of the story, right? We tend to do that sometimes. Because we're familiar with a story, we forget to learn the lessons from the story. Because in the story of David and Goliath, and perhaps more so in the aftermath of David versus Goliath, we learn a very important lesson for our walk as Christians. And it has to do with how we move onward from victory. I think this is the most important thing, Christian, that you can learn. And we'll talk about it. Victory is a common claim of Christians, right? Especially Pentecostal ones. Woo! Right? The more charismatic, the more we claim that victory in Christ, right? And rightfully so. Because as we read in our New Testament passage for today from 1 John 4 through 5, 4 through 5, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Don't miss the promise, Christian. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Don't miss the promise. That's an incredible promise to hang our hat on. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, there is nothing in this world that can overtake you. Somebody ought to get excited about that. That is good news. That is the gospel, folks. There is nothing that can stop you if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ gave his life to give you victory. But we have to know how to walk in that victory. Because if we don't, that victory becomes short-lived. And it actually turns into the one of the most deadly poisons of which we can drink. Pride. So let's learn from David how we can move onward from victory God's way. We got these three things for today. First, we have to finish the victory. 
Second, we have to find the correct friends in victory. And then third, we have to find the anchor in victory. These are all things that David does so well and that others around David don't do so well. And we can learn from those lessons to see how we can truly claim victory in Christ. So first, to move onward from victory, you must finish the job. We've talked a lot about calling lately, right? We talked about it specifically last week, about how Elisha was called of God, how there is no anointing, there is no power outside of calling. If you want to walk in God's power, if you want to walk in God's anointing, you must walk in the calling he has on your life, right? But here's the deal. Ladies and gentlemen, if God has called you to it, finish the job. Christian, finish. I get so frustrated because I see this common theme among Christians recently, and I don't know if it's cultural or I I don't know what the problem is, but Christians are so fast to start stuff. Churches are so fast to start stuff, but we don't finish the job. We don't get it done, right? We should, because if God has called you to it, finish the calling. Now look, is God going to call you to absolutely, completely finish the project? Maybe not. Maybe you're called to step in and to carry on the project for a season and then to hand it off to someone else. But if that's the case, then hand it off, doggone it. Because so many times the church or Christians start things and then they just fizzle out. It's on to the new shiny program or the new shiny project. We need a new vision. We need a new, why don't you finish the old one that God gave you? before you move on to the new one. Well, nobody's going to come to a church like that, right? The American attention span is only 15 minutes, pastor, so your sermon should only be 15 minutes. I don't give a rip what the American attention span is. I'm going to preach for an hour, y'all. I'll try to keep it down, but you know, I do preach for an hour, right? But we are so quick to develop the next product that we don't finish what God has asked us to finish. If God called you to it, he is calling you to it to complete it. Because guess what? We're supposed to walk this life like Jesus, right? We're supposed to be like God. God's called us to be holy as he is holy. And what does God do, right? He who, fini- or he who started a good work in you, what? Completes it, right? Praise God. Aren't you glad that he didn't start you on this road and then let you go? Well, Jeremy, I started you on this path of salvation, but you got to a point and I got tired of you and moved on to a new person, so you're on your own now, boss. He doesn't do that. When God starts a good work, he finishes it. So when God calls us as his people to start a good work, finish the work. Look at David. It says, thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Look. Look at the word of God, y'all. Goliath's dead, right? David didn't need a sword, right? We've all heard that sermon before, right? The Philistine's dead, but David is taking no chances. David's not leaving the option for a resurrection here because he takes the sword. David ran, stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. 
When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. David takes Goliath's own sword out of his sheath and cuts his head off with it, finishes it. It's over. It's done. It wasn't good enough for David just to win. David wanted to put on a clinic. Church, we need to be more like this when it comes to walking in God's calling, when it comes to walking in victory in Christ. Look, I used to coach football, and when I coached football, I did not want players who wanted to win. I didn't. I wanted players who hated losing. Because you know what? If you hate losing, you will pay any price to make sure that you never taste that. Come on, somebody. You know that, right? If you hate losing, the problem is, I I coached at Bowling Green High School. Our teams were not very good back then. We had a lot of players who just liked winning. Yay, we won. But they also got a lot of participation trophies growing up. And so they were okay with just, you know, oh, okay, yeah, oh, shoot, we lost. Sugar. On to the next one. That's not what I want. And I don't think that's what God wants. God wants people who hate losing, who look at the potential for victory and who say, man, I am going to pay any price it comes so that I don't fail my God. Who run after it with all of their strength because that's what David does. David says, I'm not just going to beat Goliath. I'm going to embarrass him. I'm going to rub the Philistines' face in it. This is their champion. Well, I'm going to show them my champion, and I'm going to embarrass theirs. Say, whoa, that's a little harsh. Take it back a little, David, right? We don't want to do that. But guys, look, this isn't just David, right? Now, we all know this, right? The story of David versus Goliath, when it's put in the Bible. It is a historical event, but it's also pointing to a much bigger historical event, right? Because David equals Jesus, right? This battle of David versus Goliath is showing us what Jesus did. And what's the word of God tell us that Jesus did? That he just won. Oh, yeah, you know, Jesus defeated sin and death, and it was nice. It's not what it says, right? Look at Colossians 2, 13 to 15. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgression, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them lost my place having triumphed over uh, them through him jesus didn't just defeat sin and death he embarrassed them ladies and gentlemen your god and savior he took satan's face and he rubbed it in this loss he embarrassed sin and death and the grave for you come on somebody this is incredible and this is exactly what he has called us to do When you defeat sin and death and Satan and the grave, and you have defeated it, not because of anything you've done, but because of the victory that he has won for you, he wants you to embarrass Satan. He wants you to shame the enemy, to put him on display, to cut off his head. Right? Get fired up about it. This is the victory he's called you. Cut off the giant's head. But yet, 
This is more than just calling, y'all. Because as the church continues to not finish the job when it comes to calling, we've also gotten into a really dangerous position where we don't finish the job when it comes to salvation and sanctification. We don't cut off the giant's head. We've got sin in our lives that we let hang around, right? Because doggone it, it's fun. Sin wasn't fun, nobody do it, right? We wouldn't struggle with it. And so we justify it. Oh, it's not, my sin's not that bad. I mean, I know I talk about so-and-so behind his back, but it's not, it's different. What me and my wife say at home, that's different. And we let sin hang around. You know, there's a Puritan minister, I've quoted him many times, not this quote, but his name is John Owen. He's one of my favorite old school quotable guys. Uh, But he says this, he says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. We don't even know what it means to mortify anymore, do we? It's an old word, yes. It's so a little past there. But part of the reason why we don't know what it means, church, is because we have forgotten how to do it. We don't make this a daily practice in the church anymore. When we mortify something, that means to subdue an urge, oftentimes an earthly or a fleshly urge, to subdue an urge through self-denial or discipline church it's a lost art today in the church in our culture we say that the giant is dead enough we we got it with the stone we got it with the sling it's laying there it's doing the dead twitch it's gone man we don't have to cut off its head but the problem is we let that sin hang around long enough and it turns out it was only sleeping jesus christ has called you to live in victory christian When you decided to become his disciple, that was a walk of victory that he asked you to follow him on. Cut off the head of that giant. Make a spectacle of him. Embarrass him. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And this gets a whole lot easier when we find the right friends in victory. Victory can bring out the best in us, can also bring out the worst in us. But it can also do the same with those around us. And we have to be so very careful who we call friends in the middle of victory and after victory. Because we see three kinds of people in this story of David and Goliath. I snuck one on you again. I told you I had three points for you, but point two actually has three points within it. So it's actually a six-point sermon, but I can't say that at the beginning because then you all know it's going to be a three-hour sermon and everybody would leave. So these are the three friends that we see in this story. We see covenantal friends in victory. We see users in victory. And we see fans in victory. And I'm actually going to work through this backwards. So first up, we're going to look at fans in victory. And this is everybody's favorite, right? We all love fans. Because honestly, who wants to be told that they're doing things wrong when you could surround yourself with people who tell you you do everything right? Right? That's my kind of party. 
Just tell me all the ways I'm great. Don't tell me how I can grow or change anything. I just want to hear how awesome I am. And we see that in David. This is after he slays Goliath. It wasn't in our scripture reading, but it says, So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with the tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Here's the deal. We all love fans, right? Let's be honest. We all love it. But in fact, we don't need fans. Fans, more often than not, cause more damage to us internally, to who we are, who we perceive ourselves to be, and also around us. Now, don't get me wrong. It is good to encourage one another. We all need to be encouraged, but we cannot only encourage. We simply cannot encourage each other into the kingdom of God. There must be truth, and love they go hand in hand and fans unfortunately very rarely speak hard truth there's a lot of love with fans but they can't critique and without critique there's no growth it's just allowing you to get stuck in a rut and continue to do the same thing wrong over and over again and this is what's terrifying the church has gotten really good at encouragement today. So much so that Christians today have made God, and that's a lowercase g, God, into their fan. Tell me how often you've heard these. God loves you. He would never change a thing about you. He made you this way, and you're just the bee's knees. You probably haven't heard bee's knees because nobody says that anymore, but something similar don't change a thing about you god loves you just the way you are do you see it we've turned god into our cosmic fangirl he's up there swooning over us right jeremy walks up here on stage to preach and god's up there like those girls in the old film when the beatles used to come off the plane And that's what we've made God to be. And it's funny, but it's terrifying. I, I've said this to some of you before. I don't know if I've ever said it on a Sunday, but guys, I get scared if I go more than two days in my Bible reading and God doesn't correct me on something. Now look, maybe I just stink. Maybe I'm just an awful person. And I'm okay with that because when I read the word of God, I see God do some pretty amazing things through awful people who are willing to be corrected. But guys, we have got, now number one, it starts with God, right? God is holy, I am not. And if I'm willing to accept that, if I'm willing to accept that, then that means that there is correction that's going to come, right? If God is holy and I'm not, then he's going to correct me to make me like him. Which means God's not my fan. Now look, is God crazy about me? Absolutely he is. 
But if I'm walking outside of Christ, is God mad at me? (laughs) Absolutely he is. If I'm not in Christ, if I'm not walking in Christ, then I don't get to sit under that Christ umbrella, right? And say, oh, wrath of God, hit this umbrella for me. I know I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing, but I've got the God umbrella. Can't touch me, right? Like when you play tag as a kid and you get to base, eh, stick out your tongue at the people chasing you because they can't get you on base, right? Jesus is that base, but listen, y'all, if you want to stay on that base when you're playing tag with God, you got to stay with Jesus. You got to stay in step with Jesus because you take your hand off Jesus, you're not on base anymore. You're not walking with Jesus, you're not on base anymore. But we keep trying to claim Jesus, right? God's going to forgive me anyway. Mm. That's a cheap grace, y'all. And I don't believe that my Lord and Savior died on a cross for that kind of grace. So that you can just do whatever you want. Oh, God will forgive me. That's not how it works. We read this in our Bible in a year plan. It comes from Isaiah 30, 15. It says, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you were not willing. Fans will never call you to repent because you're not doing anything wrong according to fans. But the problem is fans will always be disappointed. Because eventually, we see it all the time, y'all. I can remember I was uh, teaching at the high school, and Tiger Woods, you know, had all that stuff come out about him where he was doing all these extramarital things, and, you know, all these, all these people just, oh, my goodness, Tiger Woods, da-da-da-da-da, and all this stuff, and it hit me. Why, why do we always tear down these celebrities when they screw up like this and act like it's the end of the world? But the problem is it's because these fans build them up and put them on this giant pedestal. And your world starts to revolve around these personalities. And then they fail because guess what? We all fail, right? We do the same thing with pastors. These pastors at megachurches who have these moral failures and burn out and, you know, just just collapse. Y'all, Jesus Christ is the only one who's got the shoulders strong enough to carry that burden of Lord. You aren't which means that you are going to come to a point in your life where your fans will be disappointed with you. You will fail them. We tell couples this all the time when we marry them. See it a lot of times with spouses. You know, a wife will put all of her, you know, oh, my husband, oh, he's my world. You know, my wife, she's my world. They're going to let you down too. Husbands, you will let your wife down if you haven't yet. And all the wives said, amen. But wives, you're not off the hook because you're going to let your husband down. My wife's in kids' church, so I can say that. (laughs) But if you have fans in your life, and we all have fans in our life, we all have people who think we we do things great, you're going to come to a point where you're going to let them down because you can't live up to that hype. So stop trying. I'm going to free you from that burden. Stop trying. But it doesn't stop there. See, it doesn't ruin David in this story because David's anchor's in the right spot. But these fangirls, with their little jingle, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands, or however it went, they end up dividing an entire kingdom. 
because their little song makes it to the ears of King Saul. And Saul very quickly goes from being a fan to being jealous and envious of David's popularity. But we know this from sports, right? You all have your favorite sports team? Any Ohio State fans in the house? Who do you hate more than anyone? Michigan fans. Oh, those Michigan fans, right? And we laugh, and oh, it's funny, you know? Until you read reports of somebody who goes to an Ohio State game in a Michigan jersey, and Ohio State loses to Michigan, and the fan gets pummeled outside the stadium within an inch of his life over a football game? Right? I don't know that, th I'm not saying that happened at Ohio State, but, but it's happened places, right? You go to an Oakland Athletics baseball game and you're wearing the wrong jersey and you get shot for it. Because we can't distinguish the line between being a fan and having your world revolve around this stuff. It starts as fun, but it very quickly turns when it starts to threaten who we are as a person. And while Saul started as a fan, his true colors came out when he heard this song. Word tells us that Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. And we see that Saul was actually the worst kind of fan that you can have around. And that's a user. Saul had absolutely no problem with David when he slayed Goliath, did he? He had no problem sending David out to fight all of these battles against the Philistine armies, right? Because it paid. It was working for Saul. But now, all of a sudden, David's notoriety threatened something that was very dear to Saul. And all of a sudden, we have a problem. We see this in fans quite often. As soon as a fan gets threatened somehow, right? And it could just be simply they thought you were perfect. They thought you hung the moon, and all of a sudden, they found out you didn't. Then all of a sudden, the wheels fall off the bus. They become hostile. They want nothing to do with you. It could be that you think you're walking in covenantal relationship with this friend. And you speak a hard truth that they don't want to hear. Something that hits a little too close to home, right? People are really good at keeping walls up. And you say, hey, friend, let me get a little closer. And you push that nerve. You all know it. You've all got it. And you probably, some of you, most of you probably know what that nerve is. The second someone brings this up in conversation, shunned. Conversation's over. Friendship is over. It's too close. I don't want to let somebody get into that closet. There's skeletons in there, and I really like them in there. It could be that this fan was along for the ride as long as they were getting something in return. As long as they got a little piece of the pie, that's, that's what Saul was, right? But there always comes a point where your worth runs out to them. And as soon as it does, you're gone. 
Or worse, as soon as it does, they go on a mission to destroy you. And that's what happened with Saul. Right? David threatened him, and it wasn't good enough just to cut ties. All of a sudden, he's got to go. And he's got to go in the worst way possible. And so Saul started doing all of these sneaky things. Sneaking around, trying to trip David up, trying to mess David up, get him to fall into some sin, get him to fall in a battle. All of these things. Because he didn't just want him defeated. He wanted him humiliated. He wanted him out of the picture entirely. Saul turned on David. Not because he had so much to lose. That's what Saul thought, right? Saul thought, if I let this David continue, he's going to take my kingdom. That's not what it was. What it was is Saul was anchored in the wrong thing. Saul's anchor was in something of this world. And if he let David continue, David was going to destroy that anchor. It's incredible the things that we do when somebody gets close to idols in our lives. You've got two choices. You recognize it's an idol and you move your anchor. Or you lash out and you protect that idol at all costs. Users protect idols at all costs. But the other kind of friend is the kind that we want to be. And that's a covenantal friend. And we see this in maybe my favorite character, other than Jesus, in the Bible. Jonathan. The word, the word starts this chapter off with David and Jonathan. It says, now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. I love Jonathan. And the character of Jonathan more than anything else shows us how little this world understands what covenantal love is. Because if you read lots of modern Western theology, I say Western theology, and I call it theology, but it's not theology. It's justification to make us feel better about the sin we allow in our lives. They say that the relationship between David and Jonathan was that of a homosexual nature because we don't understand covenant. We don't understand how two men could share this relationship where I say, I will do anything for you, brother. My life is yours, and I will run after anything. You have me heart and soul. You say, oh, that's, that's only, that's saved for marriage. You're right, it is saved for marriage because marriage is a covenant. But it doesn't mean covenants don't happen elsewhere. Where? Christian, you serve a God of covenants, which means when you're called to love like that God of covenants, you are called to love everyone covenantally. And Jonathan doesn't get talked about nearly enough. We completely miss what's even happening here. I've actually heard this preached on when people talk about the prodigal son, but nobody ever talks about it here. Jonathan takes off his robe and puts it on David. Any ancient reader of that text knew right away what was going on in this story. 
When Saul dies, where does the kingdom go? To his firstborn, right? That's how ancient family lines work. Who gets the kingdom? Jonathan. When Jonathan takes off his robe and puts it on David, Jonathan says, David, I see an anointing and a calling on your life, and I will do anything to see you step into it. This kingdom is supposed to be mine, but David, I am giving it to you. When he takes off that robe, it is highly symbolic. We hear it in the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son runs to the father. The father takes off his robe and puts it around the son. That means all that I have is yours. That's what God does with us, right? All that I have is yours. And it's what Jonathan does with David here. This is incredible, y'all. And it goes right over our head most of the time. This is the covenant. Jonathan says, David, you've got my sword, you've got my spear, you've got my bow, you've got my arrow, you've got my life. I will do anything that you need to see you walk into this calling that God's placed on you. It's not just a contract. Hey, David, as long as you promise not to kill my entire family, I'll, I'll you know, let you do this. That's not what it is. That's not what covenant is covenant says even if you don't hold up any part of the deal i will love you i will give you everything that i have the world doesn't like covenant because that sounds to the world like well that's a doormat invitation you're telling me to lay myself down and you can just wipe your muddy feet all over me yep that's exactly what it is that's what jesus calls us to and y'all when you look at jesus's life did he do anything less his entire life was lived out in covenant. See, it's only in this covenantal friendship that we can speak truth, that we can actually speak truth to one another. Because in covenant, you are assured that when I come to you with hard truth, it's not because I just want to beat you up. It's not because, oh, well, you're getting a little high on the peg, let's kick you down a couple notches. It's, I want to see you look more like Jesus. And so I'm going to speak hard truth to you. But you know it's coming from a place of love. You know it's coming because I want you to be the best version of yourself. If we tell a friend in covenant, buddy, you got to change this. It's not because we hate them. It's because we love them and we want what's best for them. See, we've gotten so far away from covenant as a culture that you can't disagree with anyone anymore, right? Everything is an assault on who you are as an individual because we've built up this idea that you are the ultimate authority. But everywhere in the Bible it says he is the ultimate authority and we are all working our way to him. And I'll get there someday, praise God. But until then, we need each other, y'all. We need these covenantal friends to walk through life, to make us look more like Christ together. But unfortunately, when you w start walking in covenant with someone, you find out very quickly what they're really interested in. If you're lucky, we're not lucky, if we're blessed, 
you find out that they want to walk in covenant with you. They're willing to accept what you have to say, and maybe even better, they're willing to give you a little critique back, right? Not blow for blow. We don't want to do that. Lots of times that's what can happen too. You tell me hard truth, all right, my turn. I get to tell you hard truth now. No, 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 no. That's not a good time to tell hard truth, right? Let's let it cool off for a month, a week, a little bit. Then maybe if there's hard truth, we can talk about it. But we don't blow for blow. That's not how covenant works. But when we walk in covenant with one another, we shape each other and we look more like Christ. Fans aren't going to stick around in covenant. They don't want anything to do with it. Covenant's hard. Fans don't like hard. Users don't stick around in covenant. They cost too much. But guys, the world right now needs more Jonathans. God's love is covenantal. Ours should be too. Because in covenantal relationship, we can clearly see the anchor in victory. And we've got to get this right. Pastor Mark Batterson, two weeks in a row with the Mark Batterson quote. How about that? He says this, What we don't turn into praise turns into pride. And ultimately, this is the most dangerous thing about our victories as Christians. This is why I believe that victory, not defeat or loss or failure, is the most dangerous thing that Christians must learn how to move on from. Because if we don't, we are in big trouble. There's a reason pride's in that list of seven deadly sins, right? It's one of the ugliest, y'all. And it is such a silent killer. Very few people actually realize they struggle with pride. If you're smart, you see it. But very rarely does someone who struggle with pride know that they struggle with pride. But unfortunately, y'all, the church keeps building this up. It's like we talked about before, right? We keep building up this mentality with a God of encouragement who's just yeah, rah, rah, Jeremy, go. And who only speaks encouragement, it's very easy to anchor my victory in the wrong things. And that pride starts to sneak in. But here's the deal. You are not the hero of your story. Did you know that? You're not the hero. Now, how many of you do this? When I read books, I always like to picture myself as the hero right? When I first saw the Lord of the Rings movies, I, I really, I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings movies, I was so disappointed because in the Lord of the Rings movie, Aragorn, the main character, who's like, you know, this awesome sword fighter and saves the day, all that stuff, he was me. That was me, y'all. So you can watch the movies all you want, but I'm telling you right now, in the books, he looks like me. So if he looks like anything else in your books, you're wrong. He looks like me. But that's what we do, right? Does anybody else read books like that, or am I just a psycho, right? No, Jeremy, you're just nuts. <laughs> but right? A little narcissism there. But, but that's what we all do. We read the story of David and Goliath, and it's not Goliath out there slaying giants. It's Jeremy, right? I killed the giant. And guys, the church teaches this. 
Because most churches, that's where the sermon ends. We say, you know, David slayed Goliath. You go out in your life and slay all your giants. And that's where the sermon ends. Go, do it, rah, rah. But guys, that's not the moral of this story. It's not the moral of any story in the Bible. You are not the hero. David knew this. David knew that he wasn't the hero. Look what he says. This is in the midst of the battle with Goliath. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. We sing a song. I was talking to Caitlin about this. I'm, I'm the worst when it comes to worship music because I constantly critique all of the lyrics. It's like, oh, that's trash. And there, there are these, these like little, little lyrics and little changes and everything, and, and they're just little things, but they bother me. And one song we, we sing here at the Gospel House, but it's, it's Hymn of Heaven. And in it, it says, you know, uh, I can't wait to join the resurrection and stand beside the heroes of the faith. That's like the line of the song. I don't like that. I just don't like it. And I don't, I don't have any like sound theology, like theologically, section B, 4C. I don't have anything like that. It's not that. But it's this. The heroes of the faith are the heroes of the faith because they never viewed themselves as heroes. You, you get that? The heroes of the faith, when we look at this story of David and Goliath, David never said in this battle, I'm going to go out and do this because I'm hot stuff, y'all. Y'all are just cold turds. I'm, I'm the man. I'm the hot stuff here. I got this. Not once. Everywhere, when you look through the life of David, Moses, you, you know, fill in the name, Paul, Peter, whoever you want, put it, put, put it in there. Whoever you've got in your hall of fame, and look, I know Hebrews, Hebrews raise up Savior. I know, I know, I know. So I'm okay with it. We sing it here. I'm okay. We're good. Shake hands, deep breath. <sighs> but, guys, the heroes of the faith all have one thing in common, and that's that they know they aren't the heroes. Every single hero of the faith pointed to Jesus and said, there's my champion. That is my hero. David knew that he wasn't the hero of this story. He knew that the only way this story has a happy ending is if God gets involved. And wouldn't you know it? God got involved. See, this is exactly what qualifies people to be heroes. God loves when people aren't after his glory. Right? What's he say? We're, we're in the book of Isaiah in our Bible in a year plan over and over again. In Isaiah, it gets to the point where you're kind of like, I get it, Isaiah. But over and over again, God says, I will not share my glory with anyone. I am the Lord God. I share my glory with no one. But we've got these Christians running around with their swords that they think is God's sword, 
swinging it all over the place. Look at me. I am a champion of the Christian faith. Look at what I'm doing for the kingdom. Ah, right? Pastor Jeremy said I'm supposed to embarrass the enemy, so I'm going to get on Facebook today and I'm going to make all my Democrat friends feel like trash. Wrong enemy, y'all. Wrong enemy, y'all. Not, not just Democrats. Repub- Democrats do the same thing. I'm going to embarrass my Republicans. It's stop picking people. People aren't your enemy. Right? When we say I'm going to embarrass the enemy, that's not a person. The enemy is Satan. We don't wage war against flesh and blood, right? We know this, Christian. We've got our little Christian Bible quiz answers that say that. We know it. Then do it. Pick the right enemy. And that becomes a whole lot easier when your anchor's in the right spot. David isn't the hero because the victory was never his to begin with. David isn't the hero because the victory was God's. The battle was God's. You guys picking up on anything here? We've talked about it a lot lately. The gifts are God's. The calling is God's. Nothing actually is yours. You get that? Nothing belongs to you. It's all his. Now look, you can get offended about it. What what do you mean? I thought God gave me all the gifts in the heavenly places. It's not yours. It's his. Now look, he willingly gives to his children, but that doesn't make it yours, right? And if we get that, if we can look at it covenantally like Jonathan, because what's Jonathan say? David, all of this is yours. It's so much easier to give something away if it's been given freely to you, isn't it? Christian, that's where we're at. God has so freely given to us. Don't hold on to it as if it's yours. Give it away because it's his. When your anchor is in this world, it is impossible not to want some of the glory because your anchor is in the circumstances of this world. When your anchor is in this world, it's uh, impossible to remain selfless. But when your anchor is in Jesus Christ, like Hebrews 6.19 tells us, this hope we have as an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Who enters within the veil except for Jesus Christ? No one. When your anchor is in Jesus Christ, then and only then is Jesus the only hero of your story. Then and only then is Satan and sin the only enemy. And you can be victorious without rubbing it in people's faces. You can love covenantally because you are held fast by the anchor, Jesus Christ, who entered the Holy of Holies on your behalf and won you the greatest victory ever known to man, the victory over death and hell and the grave. Disciple of Christ, you are victorious. Come on, somebody. We get excited about that, right? You are victorious. Finish the victory. Walk covenantally. 
anchor to Jesus. The only way, the only way to move onward from victory is to remain completely selfless. To remember that while Christ invites you to share in his victory, the victory is not yours. It is his. Jesus Christ is your champion, church. And what a champion. Not another champion like him has ever walked this earth. Come on, guys. Anybody else excited about that? Jesus Christ is your champion. Let's cling to him. He has called you to victory. Now let's finish. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast. We pray that you are pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.